1: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the Book of Luke.
0: To the God who reigns above.
1: Luke is written so that we might know we have a reliable faith. The events written about in the book were eyewitness accounts that Luke researched and wrote down for all to see. We have seen Jesus perform all kinds of miracles, healing the sick, cleansing lepers, causing the blind to see and the lame to walk. Jesus went out teaching the kingdom of God, calling all men to repent. The scribes and Pharisees hated him and wanted him dead. Jesus healed a Roman centurion's servant and raised a widow's son back to life. John the Baptist was imprisoned for sharing the truth about Herod's immoral marriage. He sent messengers to Jesus to share his doubts and disappointments. Jesus sent the messengers back with the news that the blind see, the lame walk, and lepers are cleansed. The Messiah is here indeed. We join Pastor Will in Luke chapter 7.
2: Last week, we saw how John the Baptist was discouraged, but Jesus encouraged him, challenged him, and then defended him publicly. And uh, the Pharisees, some of them snickered, and Jesus compared those Pharisees to petulant children because they, they critiqued John because he was too serious, and Jesus because he was too personable. And nothing would please them because they didn't want what God wanted. They simply wanted to maintain their power. And yet, we see here in verse 36, when a Pharisee invites Jesus to dinner, These are people who have kind of aligned themselves against Jesus. Jesus goes. He accepts the invitation and he goes. But while there, something happens that kind of horrifies the Pharisee, yet forever changes another person's life. And so as we see the surpassing love of the Savior for both Pharisee and sinner, may we see that Jesus has the same love for us and for everyone that he's created. So chapter 7, verse 36. Says, and one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and had wiped them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, When the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, he spoke within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that touches him, for she is a sinner. Here we meet the two characters, the main characters of the story. Of course, Jesus, the main character, always the main character, the central character. But two other characters here that come in. We have the Pharisee and we have the woman now we meet the Pharisee first, and it says he's just one of the Pharisees, nobody in particular. We learn later on that his name is Simon. And he had been inviting Jesus to come to one of his dinner parties. And so Jesus went down into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. Now the phrase there sat down, it means to recline at a table. So this was not just regular dinner, this was a specific special event. Now these took place in the courtyard outside a person's home because the space to do this would not be possible even inside of a Pharisee's home. But what they would do is out in the courtyard, they would recline close to each other on pillows and they would rest their le- on their left elbow and then eat with their right hand. When a rabbi attended something like this, the meal would last all day. The guests would be there reclining around the table, but those who weren't invited, they were allowed to come and observe, to, you know, to learn from the rabbi as well, or you know, to observe the conversations going on there. So famous rabbis often would draw in uninvited crowds. I imagine there was quite a few people here since Jesus was here. Normally, when you would invite someone over for something like this, it was the custom for the host to greet his guests with a, the kiss of peace, to clean, have a servant clean the grime off their feet. That doesn't mean he had a servant. He would hire somebody to do this, to clean the grime off their feet from traveling to his home. And then he, before they would eat, he would anoint their heads with either perfume or oil or incense, something to show that they were honored guests. And so uh, what's interesting is we find out that Simon the Pharisee does none of these things for Jesus Normally, if you're invited to somebody's house and they kind of treat you like you're nobody, it's kind of offensive, right? But Jesus doesn't take offense. He doesn't leave. He doesn't storm out. He stays. Now, we don't get any details on the dinner conversation. We don't find out what they talked about, how long they talked, none of that. Luke cuts right to the crazy thing that happened at some point during the dinner. It says, and behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat... At meat in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster box of ointment. We don't know who this woman is. Later in church history, she was identified as Mary Magdalene and still today... In the Roman Catholic Church, they teach that, but no scripture or any early church leader ever identified this woman, so it's best to view her as anonymous, especially when in chapter 8, Luke does identify Mary Magdalene in a different situation. There's no reason to tie the two together. This is just a gal. While we don't know who she is, everyone else in the city knew exactly who she was because it says she was a sinner. Now, that word sinner, it means someone who's a social outcast because of their evil behavior. Only one thing gave a woman that kind of a label, back then. You know, I know today in movies, we need to have gender equality. And so they make sure they've got female Roman soldiers, even though that never happened. They make sure they have like female highway robbers, which never happened. If you wanted to join a highway robbery band, it was as their personal prostitute. It was not to be a highwayman. Okay. That's things were different back then, ladies. So I realize that's not PC today, but that's how it was back then. So the only thing that would cause you to be labeled with this as a woman would be unchaste behavior. Now, whether that meant she was a prostitute or she'd been discovered to be an adulteress, we don't know. The phrase there, she was a sinner, the word was is in the imperfect tense, which means she'd been living this kind of life for a while. So most assume that meant, means she was a prostitute. Whatever her history was, everyone in the city knew it, and they ostracized her, which makes the fact that she decides to show up here very shocking. Because it says, when she knew that Jesus sat down to eat at this party, it says she brought an alabaster box of ointment. When she found out that Jesus was where he was, that he was at this dinner party, and that, you know, this is something uninvited guests could go to, she decides to go. Now, why does a social outcast decide to make a social appearance at a big event? We're not told. My guess, though, is that at some point, she'd listen to Jesus teach, probably from a distance, maybe from the shadows. But at some point, she heard Jesus teach. And based on what Jesus taught, maybe even that morning, she decided to repent and leave her life of sin behind. We don't get that part of the story. We just know what happened. And now she wants to say thank you. And to do that, it says she brought an alabaster box of ointment. Now, she's not bringing the perfume to anoint his feet. That's not why she brings it. The word there, bring, means to bring to someone to give to them. She brought it to him. Her desire was to bring it to him as a gift. Alabaster box is a bad translation. We, I don't, well, I don't wear perfume, but we keep our perfumes or colognes for us men. We keep it in jugs or jars, and they did back then too. In the Middle Ages, when the, the King James was written, they kept them in boxes at times. The word boxer just means a long-necked jar used to contain expensive perfumes. Jewish women commonly wore one around their neck. It was similar to how you ladies, maybe you showed up in a necklace today or a, a brooch or something like that. It was, it was considered decorative. It was a normal thing to see a woman like this. I wonder when this woman last felt like a normal woman. Probably been a long time. Well, her plan is to give it to Jesus, but note what happens when she gets there. It says, and she stood at his feet behind him, weeping. When she gets there, she can't even give it to him. She's just crying. She's just weeping. But while she's crying, she notices something through those tears Jesus' feet are dirty. And so the outcast decides to be more hospitable than the host. For it says, she began to wash his feet with tears. Now, if you're going to clean off somebody's grimy feet, you you need water. And so she begins to, with her tears, moisten his feet. Moisten the grime on the feet so she can wash it off. And what does she do to scrub it off? It says she did wipe them with the hairs of her head. So with her own hair, and ladies, they also didn't have short hair back then. That was not an option. So with her hair, she's scrubbing off the grime on his feet And then she, after she would do that, she would kiss his feet, and then she took the perfume and she put it on his feet so it would get rid of the stink from the grime. What she does here is not politically correct. The Jewish woman never wore her hair down or unbound in public. It was considered sensual because you were showing your full womanliness, and it was considered indecent, and so they didn't do it. So to those who knew her past, they assume this is just the prostitute being the prostitute. This is just the immoral woman doing her part again. But is that really what's going on here? Let's consider a few things. I mean, she's caking her hair with all the things sandaled feet pick up on the road. Sweat mingled dirt, clay and sand, even animal dung, you know, would be on people's feet. That's why they would have them washed. This is not a central act. This is an act of service that even the lowest servant would never perform for a guest, wiping that away with your own hair and your own tears. Why? You say, yeah, but she's kissing his feet. Well, I mean, that's... The point is, though, what's that about? Well, the thing you have to realize, in our culture, we don't do this. But it was a common practice in that culture when an important rabbi gave you a favorable ruling to show your appreciation by, and gratitude by kissing his feet. If you approach the rabbi and say, Rabbi, I've got a problem. We've got the situation. You know, we, we've got a, a, a challenge because I've got a, this disagreement with my neighbor. And if the rabbi you know, came out on your side, you would bow down before him and you would kiss his feet and say, thank you, most honored rabbi. And then you would go home and you know, give it to your neighbor. But that's the idea. That's what this comes from. It was a common practice to do that. She's seeing Jesus as that important rabbi who has given her a favorable ruling. We know that means the idea that she could be forgiven, that she could be right with God through Jesus' teaching. But that's why she's doing that. Also, the word worship, clearest way to translate it, it means to kiss toward. And while that does speak of intimacy, it also speaks of reverence, of respect. And she is doing this. She's giving worship to Jesus, respect to Jesus. She is not being sensual. She is treating him like an honored rabbi who'd done something very gracious for her. Now, surely other people there had seen Jesus's dirty, nasty feet. No one else offered to honor him this way. But she braved the crowds, the scowls, and the embarrassed blushes because the only thing that mattered to her was giving something back to Jesus for all he'd done for her. Nothing else mattered. As this is going on, I imagine that all the conversation stopped. (laughs) Imagine people are awkwardly looking away, embarrassed for Jesus because he didn't know her reputation. He didn't know who this woman was. But Simon the Pharisee, he takes it a step further. He actually begins to look down on Jesus for letting it happen. Verse 39 says, Now, When the Pharisee, which had bidden him, invited him, saw what's going on, he spoke within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, he would have known who and what manner of woman this is that touches him, for she is a sinner. Before we get into his thoughts here, we need to address the fact that how do we know what he was thinking? There's only two possibilities. The number one possibility is that Simon eventually got saved. Eventually he gave his life to the Lord. and he, This is part of his story. It's possible. We don't get any indication of that. So it's also possible that Jesus, who knows the thoughts of men's hearts, that somehow he revealed that to Luke and, and that's how Luke knows it. But Luke wasn't around for this event. So either Simon told him or the Lord told him as he's writing this. But either way, the point is Jesus knew what he was thinking without him expressing it. And no one can do that except the Lord. I cannot know somebody's thoughts. In fact, I often get in trouble by trying to guess people's thoughts, and I make wrong assumptions, like this man did. So only God knows the thoughts of a man's heart. Jesus knew what he was thinking. Now, what was he thinking? Well, he said, this man, which that's a very light way to translate that. It's a contemptible term. It means this fellow, and not in a good way. Not like jolly good fellow. It's like, no, that whatever fellow. This fellow, this guy, if he were a prophet, and that's the second class of conditional clause, which is the clause of unreality. He doesn't think Jesus is a prophet. He's assuming Jesus isn't a prophet. If this man were a prophet, and I don't think he is, well, he would have known who and what manner of woman this is that touches him, for she is a sinner. Now, that word touches is an interesting word. It's the same word used in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, when it says... Paul said, guys, remember I wrote to you concerning that it's not good for a man to touch a woman. He was talking about touching physically. The word there means to start a fire, to ignite something. It's not good for a man to do that to a woman. It's not good for a woman to do that to a man. And if you're here today and you're not a a married person and you're igniting some fires, it's time to call the fire department. All right? Seriously, you need to get some accountability. You need, to, you need to bring in the hoses, okay? Because you should not be starting those kinds of fires. And if you're starting those fires, it's not good. If you are married today, you might need to start some fires. Burn it all down, okay? Yeah, I heard some men say amen. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to kindle a fire. It's a part of the wonder of, of being married and uh, and the blessing that comes with it. But this guy, in say, using this word here, he's assuming that she is trying to start a fire in Jesus, that she is doing something sensual. This guy has actually made three false assumptions here. First, he assumes Jesus is just a prophet, but Jesus isn't just a prophet. He's not just God's spokesperson He's he's a son of God in the flesh. He is God in the flesh himself, so he's wrong there. Secondly, he assumes Jesus doesn't know who this woman is, but Jesus knows exactly who she is and everything she's done. And thirdly, he makes a wrong assumption about the woman. She wasn't trying to start a fire with a sensual act. She was serving the Lord. His false assumptions cause him to take a wrong course of action, to think less of Jesus and less of the woman. And can I tell you this morning, when you make false assumptions, you do, you're always going to take, when you make assumptions, because 99% of the time you're going to be false, you're going to take a wrong course of action. You know, sometimes we do it innocently because you never do the parent thing where you kind of storm into a room and then you find out everything's not as you thought it would be. We react sometimes to things because we assume we know what's going on. And before we get all the facts, we're already worked up about it. That's not healthy. It's going to cause you to take a wrong course of action. And we assume things all the time with people. When somebody cuts us off on the road, we assume it's because, well, they just think they're more important than I am. I have to remind myself, well, maybe they're on the way to the hospital. Maybe they just got fired. You know, I, I mean, who knows what happened? It could be the bad things too, but maybe... Just having a bad day. And why don't you give him the benefit of the doubt? That's what the Bible says. Love believes the best, not the worst. It assumes the best, not the worst. But this guy, he's assumed the worst. Now, if I knew everything Jesus did at this moment, I know what he's thinking. I'd have most likely defended the woman, lambasted Simon, and left. But what's interesting, Jesus doesn't even address what she's doing. He addresses Simon as a rabbi would normally do in a situation where a lesson could be taught. He ministers to Simon. Why? Because he loves Simon too. And he wants to affect change in his life, just like this woman's already experienced. Look at verse 40. And Jesus answering, and I love that. He didn't say anything, but Jesus replies to him. Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And Simon said, Master, say on. The woman here is never named, but Simon is. Jesus calls him by name. It's almost like he's saying, you've assumed I don't know who she is, Simon. But not only do I know everything about her, I know everything about you, everything about you, and I care about you, and I call you by name. So will you listen to what I have to say to you? Simon says, "Sure, go on, teacher." Now, teacher is the lowest. You have you have teacher, rabbi, and then rabboni. Rabboni is that intimate, highest term of respect. Teacher is the lowest term of respect. So he's being polite here, but he's certainly not a follower of Jesus. He says, "Say on, teacher." And so Jesus, instead of explaining the situation with the woman or, or blasting Simon, he shares a parable, tells a story. He says, there was a certain creditor, moneylender, and he had two debtors. The first one owed him 500 pence. Now, pence was the Roman denarius, and it was the equivalent of a day's wage. So this guy owed about 15 months worth of salary. That's a considerable sum. Take your salary and multiply it times 1.25. That's what this guy owed. And then there was another one that owed 50. So this guy owed, you know, probably two, you know, two weeks, I mean, two paychecks worth, you know, a month worth or a month and a half worth of pay. And it says here that when they had nothing to pay, they couldn't pay the debt back, the creditor frankly forgave. He completely forgave them both. So here's Jesus's question. He says, Tell me, therefore, which of them will love the creditor who forgave them most? Which of them will love the money lender more? And the word love there means which of them will be devoted to them. It means to be devoted to someone out of a sincere appreciation and a high regard. Which one will be more, more appreciative? Which one will, will really thank this guy? Well, it's a no-brainer, right? Even a Pharisee can't mess this one up. Simon answered and said, well, I suppose... And I gotta love, love the Pharisee because they never they never give straight answers back then. You, no one spoke with authority. That's the one thing that made Jesus stand out. Jesus would say, "The word of God says." Da, 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 da. That's not how they taught back then. The rabbis would say, "Well, you know, I think it might mean this," and some other people think it might mean this, and maybe you should consider this. And then people would go away. And go. What does the Bible mean? Well. Jesus, he kind of asks this guy, what do you think? And he goes, well, I suppose, no, it's obvious. I have the opinion that he to whom he forgave the most. And Jesus goes, ding, 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 you got it. Good job, Mr. Simon the Pharisee. He said, you have rightly judged. You've come to the right conclusion. Again, it's it's interesting how Jesus works because it was normal when a rabbi was even interacting with his students to answer a supposition. If you say, well, I think this, well, then the rabbi would answer with a different point of view. Well, have you thought of this? Or they would give you a new question to make you ponder more and go a little bit deeper. But Jesus comes right out and says, you got it right. You nailed it. See, Jesus kept things very simple. This is right. This is wrong. This is what pleases God. This is what doesn't please God. So he kind of puts the Pharisee off because now they've got an area where they've got common ground. And having established an important truth that they can agree on, Jesus finally addresses the elephant in the room. Look at verse 44. Now Jesus finally turns to the woman. He doesn't talk to the woman yet because he's still ministering to Simon. He turned to the woman, but he says to Simon, seest thou this woman? Now, I'm sure everybody's probably thinking, uh, Jesus, <laughs> that's the point. We all see the woman. Have you seen her? <laughs> that's, that's what we're wondering. Have you seen her? And yet that word see It means to take notice of or to be truly aware. Certainly everyone there had seen the woman, including Simon. But had they actually taken the time to notice what she actually did? You see, only Jesus had seen a changed life and loving service. Everyone else saw the sinner. And that's a great place to stop. Because do we really look at people? Or do we ignore what God's doing because we think we've got them figured out? I have seen more hurt done by people who think they've got other things and other people figured out. When I was a college age, high school age, the Lord called me to be a pastor. Problem was, I wasn't fit to be a pastor at that time. Beverly, when we started dating, she would cringe when someone would come along and want to talk about the Bible because if you got it wrong, I was going to get you. That's how I was. If you were a little bit off, man, the jaws were going to clamp down, I was going to get you. And she knew that that meant a fight was going to start, because most people don't like having that happen to them, and so they tend to defend themselves or fight back. And so even though I was well-meaning and I was very passionate for truth, I would oftentimes offend people, and Beverly would, she would be like, oh, you know. And, and she would try to encourage me, you know, Will, can you can maybe try to be nice? So I knew that that needed to change. The Lord, over those years, was dealing with me and saying, Will, you, you, I want to use you, and I've got a call in your life, but I can't use you like this right now. So you've got to repent. You've got you to change. And so when I went off to Bible college, I remember I, I was getting to know one of my roommates the very first or second day I was there, and, and I said, so what the Lord? What's, what's the Lord teaching you lately? And he said, well, to be slow to the wrath, slow to speak, and quick to listen. I he goes, what's the Lord teaching you? And I said, I didn't even know that verse existed, but that's what God's trying to teach me. <laughs> like, where is that? And he showed me in James. And, I, and, you know, God had to break me. And it became a time where I had to realize I can't assume things about people. People, you come in here, and I, I don't know what, what you're coming in with. You might be a hypocrite. You might be just somebody who's made a lot of bad decisions and you're struggling trying to figure out what to do. You might just be hurting. You might have had a bad day. You know, and and, and if, if I'm gonna wait here to just go off on you, then you know, the Lord's work's not gonna get done. I have to treat every single person that comes in here the way that Jesus treats them, by reaching out to minister to them, by seeing them through not just who they are, but who God wants them to be. If you if you make assumptions about people and you're getting hurt all the time or you're getting offended all the time or you're forming opinions all the time, can I challenge you to stop? You've not learned that from Christ. It has no place in our lives. If you have any
1: spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at four zero seven five two three zero eight zero zero. During our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk,
0: and live in the Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells.